Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books and Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am your host, Prithuparna Padkiri. Today, I'm going to be in conversation with Jeff Harkness. He's an associate professor of sociology at Rhode Island College, whose scholarship focuses on the interactive micro practices of small groups. Harkness also holds a PhD in sociology from Northwestern University and an MBA from the University of Rhode Island. His research examines phenomena such as race, ethnicity, social class, gender, social movements, and globalization through topics that include sports, clothing, marriage, music, and popular culture. He is the award-winning author of three books, Chicago Hustle and Flow, Gangs, Gangster Rap, and Social Class, published by the University of Minnesota Press, Changing Qatar, Culture, Citizenship, and Rapid Modernization, New York University Press, and Devious Minds, the 20-year saga of the greatest rap group to almost make it out of Kansas, Columbia University Press. In today's conversation, we will be discussing his book, Changing Qatar, Culture, Citizenship, and Rapid Modernization, published by the New York University Press in 2020. Jeff, I'm very glad to have you here. Welcome to this interview. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. Right. So let me begin with a very fundamental question in terms of what was the main motivation behind writing this book? Also, if you could talk a little bit about its contemporary relevance, considering the fact that Qatar is in news very much these days. Sure. Yes. Thank you. Uh, Great questions. Uh, My motivation for writing the book was that I'm a sociologist and most of the books that I read about Qatar were written by political scientists or historians. Those were invaluable perspectives and really helped me to understand the country itself, but sometimes offer kind of a 30,000 foot uh, perspective. So the sort of very big picture. 
Whereas as a sociologist, I'm always interested in, in the cultural aspects and sort of what's going on at the micro level. So the books that I was reading didn't offer that sort of perspective on Qatar, uh, that sort of human level that sociologists are so tuned into. And so although I felt like those books were outstanding in terms of me understanding and situating you know, Qatar within the history uh, and, and region, it didn't really help me to understand what it was really like there. And so I wanted to write a book that captured at least some of that uh, sort of cultural aspect of it. Um, you know, I spent three years uh, there and so I, I studied a lot of different things and kind of couldn't help, uh, you know, studying, studying a lot of different topics when I was there. And in terms of the book itself and its contemporary relevance, I think that cities like Doha may offer some glimpse of the future, uh, these sort of very modern very um, highly technologically proficient air-conditioned cities that serve as playgrounds for wealthy elites, but that are run largely by low-paid servant class workers. So, um, you know, in in some ways it may be a bellwether of of what we we could see to come. Right. So... Also, as a sociologist, uh, I have to ask you in terms of your methodological approach to Qatari life and society. So what were the main methods that you have used in this work? Thank you. Well, I spent three years living and working in Qatar. And when I got there, I you know, was start, starting to look for different things to study and had lots of different ideas. Uh, I began with sports because right when I got there, it was announced that the cutter was going to be uh, hosting the World Cup. And so sports were, were you know, sort of something that people were talking about and interested in, and it was really had energized everyone. So that was a place where I began. Now, the research itself is qualitative. It's grounded in field work and empirical observation. So, um, for example, the book's opening chapter is set up at a stand-up comedy performance in Doha. And so that type of work was was very traditional qualitative field work. Me by myself in the field, you know, taking notes, you know, making recordings, taking photographs, sitting in on the rehearsals of the comedians, interviewing the comedians, watching the performances and and looking for differences and patterns. Uh, but for other parts of the research, I worked very closely with uh, six undergraduate student research assistants, and they helped me at different times working on different parts of the project. Between us, we conducted 130 formal interviews, so sit down and, and interview somebody. And um, I, I did a lot of those, but also the students did a lot of those, and, and all of those perspectives were really helpful. There were other parts of it, too, that were not in the book, but were that very helpful for me in terms of just understanding Qatar and its role in the region and its role in the world. Uh, one of the most important was that I, I did a research trip to Iraq. And um, when I was in Iraq, I did uh, formal interviews with 32 uh, athletes, student athletes, female athletes, and a few players and coaches as well, and spent time uh, there that was really just instrumental for me in understanding sports and its role in the region, female athleticism in the region, differences that I would see in Qatar versus other places. Um, so those sorts of uh, research experiences, which I have written about elsewhere, don't show up in the book, but were really helpful for me in terms of just understanding uh, the country. And even uh, travels that I took to India, travels that I took to um, 
China travels that I took to the UAE and places like that, Beirut to Lebanon, were really helpful for me in just understanding um, Qatar, its history, its place in the world and things like that. So it was three years of immersive research, you know, and I would say at the foundation of it really are the 130 formal interviews that we conducted. Hmm. Right. So uh, how do you map the relationship between Qatar and the larger Arabian Gulf region? Uh, how does this relationship also impact con- contemporary Qatar and, you know, makes it what it is today? Well, that's an excellent question. And it's it's a really important one to ask if you're trying to understand Qatar and even something like the World Cup. You really do need to understand the history of the country and even its relationship to the other countries in the region, because all of that impacts what we're seeing on the ground at the World Cup today. So in the early Bedouin days, there were um, no real political borders, so to speak, of the tribe was the primary political unit. Uh, later, during the Perling era, countries began to uh, f- begin to draw up national borders, and those became enormously consequential later when petroleum was discovered. Um, nationality became consequential in the oil age, in the petroleum age. Um, Qatar itself has been ruled for more than 150 years by a single dynastic family, the Althanis. And likewise, the other Gulf nations are ruled by these longstanding dynastic families. And really, these families are an outgrowth of the original tribes. So these ruling families are based in the original tribes, have a lot of power. And um, in addition to the political power, they, they have social and cultural power as well. Within that system, however, uh, they don't have unlimited power to just do whatever they want. There are still longstanding tribal elders who have a lot of influence behind the scenes. And so there are tensions, the political tensions and social tensions that uh, occur behind the scenes that may not be apparent at the surface level, but that still impact um, contemporary life in, in Qatar in ways that we may not see. Right. We also often talk about westernization and the role of the West, particularly the United States of America when it comes to the Middle East. And in your book also, you do talk about how there are these ways in which Western ideas influence Qatari society. So I'd like to know what role does westernization play in their society? And what are some of these domains in which one could see the Western influence? Yes, very good question. So one of the, the, the things that gets conflated is modernization, which would be separate from westernization. And Qatar has experienced this incredible modernization. Um, so there's been the development of an infrastructure, I mean, literally highways and things like that, the complete reimagining of the system of education from top to bottom, the massive influx of technology, the rise of consumerism. These are not necessarily Western per se. Um, they're, they're part of the modernization process that's occurring. Where you see the Western influence is then, you know, in the choice to, let's say, consume Western popular culture, like rap music or Hollywood films, for example. So young people in Qatar consume the same music and the same movies that young people do in lots of places of parts of the world. And so you can see the sort of Western influence in things like clothing. Um, you can see it in, in education, in the curriculum of education and the structure of education that's been put into place, these Western institutions that have 
have been invited in. Uh, you see it in entertainment, in the films that play, in the in the music that people listen to, the TV shows that they watch, um, the way that people talk, even the the influence of you know rap music, hip hop culture, Hollywood films, uh, Desperate Housewives, all of these things influence the way that people uh, talk and see the world if they're consuming that culture. Um, and then even cultural practices like dating and marriage, um, which which are in some ways have have a very traditional element um, structurally are thought about in, and talked about and described in ways that are very much sound like Hollywood films uh, sometimes or, or very romantic songs. So you see the influence of westernization in in those sorts of arenas. What's interesting is how it's not that you know like for example the films that play in theaters in doha it's not just going to be the hollywood films you're also going to get the bollywood films and um you know films from the you know from europe and films from the region in the middle east so it's it's um it's not just this um western process where where the west is sort of taking over um it's it's it works a little bit differently and that's one of the things that i think makes it so interesting Right. So you um, very, uh, you know, carefully distinguish the modern from the Western. And of course, it's also important to keep that in mind. Now, uh, what would be the way in which the people of Qatar participating in this conflict or so-called clash between what we call the traditional and the modern? How do they see this and what is their role? Right. Well, to some degree, it's generational. And, and that's because Qatar experienced this massive wealth that, that you know, they, the country gained its independence in 1971. And that, that certainly helped them economically. But in the mid-1990s, there was a real, um, you know, boost in wealth. And, and with it came, you know, a massive influx of population as well. So you've seen a huge rise in wealth and a huge increase in the population and a just wholesale change of of the country itself the infrastructure you know from the mid 1990s especially until today so those who were in their 60s or 70s or 80s and up remember a completely different way of life in Qatar. Um, so this has changed the the surface of things so there's an emphasis on consumerism for example that some describe uh, that you see today that didn't exist, you know, back in in the days before there were all of the shopping malls and stores that you see today. Um, But also it's changed um, bigger things. So the size of families, for example, has shrunk. The need for large extended families, um, you know, is just not as prevalent today as it was during the, the Bedouin era or during the Perling era when the extended family was was so much more important economically. Um, so the you know, lots of things have changed, and the Qatari youth today have not experienced the sort of hardship and struggle that the older generations could still remember. Uh, so the dire poverty of the past, uh, the dire poverty of the desert, has been romanticized uh, for a generation that never actually experienced it firsthand. And so there's a a concern that the original, you know, traditions and ways of life uh, are eroding under this um, modernization, some of which is, is Westernization. But as I said, it's not just the Western influence. It's just the, you know, the wholesale change. Right. 
going into the more specifics of the book, you use the term petro family in the book and devote some time to talk about it. So what does it mean? Yes. So petro families are, I was trying to understand sort of who are uh, these young people who are populating the workplaces and the colleges and universities at these these elite institutions uh, that are situated throughout the Gulf region today. And these are um, often Qatari or Arabian Gulf families whose members were born between 1971 and 2015 and who are the direct beneficiaries of the hydrocarbon wealth from these oil-rich Gulf nations. Um, Petro family members tend to um, be in units that the the Petro families are small. They're similar to a nuclear family. So you have mom, dad, and two kids, and then also the domestic workers that are always part of the household in Petro families. Um, They tend to be educated. They tend to be globally situated. So they don't just live in one place. They, you know, move to from place to place following the sort of oil industry and the oil wealth. Um, They're more likely to marry someone outside of their own nationality. Uh, They're less likely to marry someone uh, who is a member of their family, extended or otherwise. They tend to have fewer children, as I said. Um, They attend um, elite private universities and schools as children and universities as adults. Um, They earn degrees at Western universities and work as creative class professionals. And, um, you know, these are, these are the, the young people who are tasked with transforming Qatar and these other nations into these sort of modern, um, hubs for business and, and leisure and entertainment and, and trade and commerce. All right. And uh, how do these petro families represent the idea of modern traditionalism? So uh, that's a great question. Um, Modern traditionalism is basically the government's national branding strategy. So it's a deliberate mixing of the so-called old traditions of Qatar with the new and contemporary. You really see this in, in like the stadiums that were built for the World Cup. So they're designed to look like tents, you know, although they're air conditioned and have roofs that, you know, move around and things like that. So they're a deliberate blend of of the old and the new. Um, and, and Petra families are tasked with transforming the Gulf into this international hub for business and leisure and technology and trade. And so in some ways, they embody this idea of modern traditionalism um, and embody the, the brand of modern traditionalism, or, or this is the, the government's hope is that they will uh, sort of carry forth this branding uh, strategy um, in, in, into their workplaces and into their lives and, and ultimately, you know, change the culture so that it resembles something, you know, closer to, um, you know, let's say the, the types of cultures that we might see in, in the West. Right. Uh, now, coming to the question of gender, because again, it's one of those domains where there is a lot of debates and issues. <laughs> How is social life in uh, Qatar organized around the question of gender? And uh, do you think that the state promotes itself as a supporter of gender equality or women empowerment? Yes. So in Qatar, social life is organized around gender. Uh, men and women do interact. Um, they do work together and 
and the, you know, there's, there aren't these sort of legal restrictions or something, but there are definitely separate spaces for men and women. There are separate prayer rooms. There are separate lines to stand in. There are separate sections in restaurants. Uh, often this is couched in the language of family. Uh, so women are equated with the home and the family. And so the family becomes a proxy for gender. So we're going to have a family day at the mall where only the, the quote unquote families can be there. So the women, the children um, can can shop. Um, and so the, uh, there's often this organizing of, of social life around around gender, and, and that's very prominent. It plays out in all these different areas. You even see it in, in for example, the traditional clothing. So you have the white uh, thobe for the men and the black uh, hijab for the women, and a very distinct and gendered clothing that immediately identifies someone along those lines. And so at the most basic levels, there's this sort of dividing uh, uh, folks by gender. Of course, this happens everywhere else, so it's it's not um, it's not unusual in that in that sense. But it's it's maybe a little bit more pronounced um, in terms of the government stance. They very much promote this idea of female empowerment of. Um, using uh, sports in particular, uh, but also education is, a, is another one, um, as places where women can um, become empowered. And so the government promotes and supports this idea. It's a big part of their uh, national agenda. It's a big part of their political agenda. And it's part of um, you know the branding of the country as, as being modern and contemporary. You know, So women work and they play sports and they're empowered and agentic. And so this is an important part of the brand, um, particularly because the Gulf has a reputation, um, you know, for being um, oppressive towards women. And, um, you know, Qatari um, people are very sensitive about that stereotype, uh, often disagree with it, and, um, you know, use use these sort of tropes of female empowerment as a way to, to sort of show why it's not true. Um you know, despite the the rhetoric of empowerment, um, we still see that, you know, for example, rates of female athletic participation remain low. Um, and then also even things like workforce participation, even amongst college educated women remain low, um, despite what we would think, which is that women are going to get educated and then go into the workforce. So despite the rhetoric of empowerment and despite the, the structural and financial support, we don't necessarily see the cultural change that that the country may be hoping it would see. And so that, that raises some interesting questions about this. You know, one of the, the thoughts about this, these tropes of female empowerment is that if we, you know, talk so much about how empowered the women are and how agentic the women are, then in some ways that can conceal, uh, the, the ways that women are still oppressed and, and don't receive that support. Um, if all we're talking about is how empowered they are and how, how great it all is, then in some ways we might obscure some of the, the problems and, and cover them up with this rhetoric of empowerment. So that, that's some of the concerns around, around that rhetoric. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. All right. 
so uh, could you also comment on how the hijab is used by women of qatar in the country because this is again an issue that has been at the center stage of world politics particularly with the way that the protest in iran have also you know panned out yes right so it's it's a very relevant question and you know for me as a sociologist and particularly someone who's interested in culture clothing seems to me to be very, you know, fundamental element of culture anywhere in the world. And in a place like Qatar, where the national dress, the national clothing is so distinct and and gendered and important, you know, to me, it was worth paying attention to. Um, In Qatar, women use the hijab. And when I say hijab, I mean, uh, I'm referring to all of the articles of clothing. So this is the cloak and the headscarf. and and so women use the hijab both strategically and also situationally. Um, the hijab is often seen as an article of restraint, um, you know, sort of like we're we're hearing about in Iran right now. So it's a tool of oppression. It's used by men to subjugate women. And one of the things I was interested in is how women experience the hijab and also use it in in agentic ways. So I was paying attention to what I call the micro practices of the hijab, the very small things that women um, do with their hijabs um, day in and day out, the everyday practices. I started to focus on that and we started to ask about these things in the interview too. Um, You know, one of the things is that the hijab is often um, seen as this article that conceals and covers women. And so you have this sort of, quote unquote, covered woman who's always uh, covered by the hijab. What One of the things that I found is that you know, these so-called covered women spend a lot of times where they're not covered. <laughs> so uh, some, and sometimes in public and or semi-public spaces. So for example, when women would travel, they would often remove these covered women would not be covered. Uh, when they are in settings with where there are only other women, they would remove the hijab. Um, w- you know, when they were on college campuses, which is a sort of semi-public setting, sometimes they would remove them. So there were lots of times when, when these so-called covered women did not wear their hijab and weren't uh, covered in, in the stereotypical ways that we might think of it. The other was, was the situational uh, use of it. And so how um, the, the hijab is used strategically in, in ways um, to, let's say, accent the waist. And so women would adorn the hijab with um, elaborate decorations. This is supposed to be a, an all-black outfit that conceals the figure, but they would cinch them at the waist tightly with a belt. Uh, they would accentuate them with all sorts of accessories, the the shoes, the makeup, um all of these things, the the handbags were were used as ways to express individuality and express um, a sense of fashion and identity and all of these things that, you know, supposedly the hijab takes away. And so I, I found it just interesting, the different ways that women would strategically adjust the hijabs, take them on and off, adjust them, um, revealing more or less of the hairline. And and again, all of these things are designed to tell others something about who they are. And, and, and as a means of expression. Um, 
you know, one of the things that I theorized was that these ways that women use the hijab agentically were a, a pushback against um, the restrictives of having to wear them. And so if I have to wear this thing, um, I'm going to make it very fashionable, even if it's not supposed to be. Um, even if I'm not supposed to show my hair, I am going to show some of my hair. I am going to express myself. And so it could be considered a form of resistance. At the same time, some would say that, you know, even if it, you are pushing back against it, if you're still having to wear it, then it still is this tool of oppression. And so, um, you know, it, it remains debatable, but I was really focused on um, rather than just the, the sort of stereotypical restrictions and oppressive uses of the hijab, the ways that women worked around those restrictions and, and use the hijab in a very agentic ways. All right. Very interesting response. You spoke a little bit uh, about the family and how the agenda of the family is also pushed. So uh, what about intimate relationships? How are they played out in contemporary Qatar? Well, that would, that became another big area of study in the book. And, and um, you know, one of the big components of the project was looking at, at dating and marriage. And, and one of the differences in Qatar compared to some parts of the West is that dating between unmarried people is illegal. And therefore, the process of courtship works differently in Qatar than it does, let's say, here in the United States because of that. Um, the majority of marriages in Qatar are consanguineous, So they occur between the first or the second cousin. These are um, the most desirable forms of marriage, often because of the tribal system. Um, where retaining one's name was the most important marker of social class and status in society. And so if you're born into a prominent family um, with a prominent last name, you would not want to you know, give up that last name and marry outside of the family because then you would lose your name, you would lose your status, you would lose uh, some of your wealth. So there's an incentive for people to marry within the family, to keep the family name, to keep the wealth within the family. Um, because it's illegal to date, the courtship process works a little bit different. Uh, families are really instrumental in, you know, you might call it arranging or putting together young people, often from an early age, often within the family. Um, people do have, you know, some power and agency as they do everywhere to, to accept or reject potential suitors, but the families get very involved in the situation. Um, eventually, though, a couple does agree to get married. And when they do that, they will sign a formal contract and uh, that stipulates all of the terms of the marriage and whether the woman will be allowed to work, whether how many children they are intending to have. All of the different terms uh, of the marriage are, are laid out in that contract. And that contract is basically a contract of engagement. So when the couple signs that, they're formally engaged to be married, but they're not married yet. But because of the contract, they're allowed to then date sort of publicly. And so then they will will at that point, after they are engaged, they will begin sort of traditional courtship. They'll go out on dates, they'll get to know each other, they will ostensibly fall in love, and then this will lead to marriage. Um, one of the things that I found interesting was the way that people talk about dating and marriage, um, in some ways uh, framing it as if it was this very romantic relationship, something you would find in like a Hollywood movie, swept away by the, the romance of it. And so even though these marriages sometimes were described in ways that, that would seem highly arranged uh, to some of us, 
they were still described by others as, as uh, no, this was a love story and it was meant to be and um, describing them in ways that were very, uh, very much to me sounded like these tropes from Hollywood, Hollywood films. And um, so, again, you had this mix of a sort of a traditional arranged marriage, but framed as this very much like Hollywood love story. And um, and again, I think reflecting this idea of um, both the, the modern and the traditional sort of coexisting. Right. Well, we also cannot not talk about sports, particularly in this context. And you do look at uh, sports and how uh, sports like football become a part of the developmental agenda of the modern Qatari state. Because we've been also uh, reading a lot about it in, uh, you know, the mainstream news discourse. So uh, what would be your take? considering the fact that you have lived there for three years and conducted extensive qualitative research. Well, thank you. Well, you know, Qatar uses sports to promote its brand to the world. Uh, the World Cup is the most watched event in the entire world every year that it's on television. So truly, there's a global audience here that is just unparalleled. And so for Qatar, sports are a way to promote its modern traditional brand to a global audience. And, you know, sports are such a great vehicle for this type of branding because, you know, Sports get aligned with all of these esteemed values and ideas like, you know, fair competition, uh, teamwork, cooperation, democracy, um, you know, even free market capitalism is, is you know, sort of embedded um, within sports. And so, um, you know, in, in Qatar, sports are really integral to the development of the country. They have spent billions to bring the World Cup and other events uh, to the area so that they can promote their brand to the world. And um, they've also done a lot to send their own athletes to competitions in other parts of the world representing the country and its brand. The problem that Qatar faces is that because the country is, uh, you know, relatively small and and the population has expanded so um, massively within a short period of time, there's not a, a great deal of you know, longstanding sports culture. Uh, people love sports. They love to watch sports. Don't get me wrong. Sports are hugely popular, but there's, there hasn't been you know, the, the tradition of attending sporting events. The weather is very hot. It's not nice to go sit outside in a soccer stadium. And so it's been um, difficult to develop this this sort of robust sports culture, you know, having not had um, the long history, the infrastructure, and all of those things that have been built in in just a few short years. So um, they're they're you know doing their best, but they've had problems with you know getting people to attend the matches and things like that. When I was there, they were bussing in workers and and having them you know dress up in in you know the outfits of and flat waving flags from you know countries and teams and things like that, so that when they would televise the match, it would appear as if there were a lot of people there watching it and cheering them on. And you saw the exact same thing happen in the World Cup, where Qatar hired a bunch of workers to dress in the in the cuttery colors and cheer in the stands, even though they weren't, um, you know, people who were from the area, you know, they brought them in. So, um, you know, we see the same sort of thing played out. And this is this is just because um, it's not that the people don't like sports. It's just that, as I say, it takes a while to develop uh, that sort of culture that that they are, are hoping to have appear uh, on television. All right. Uh, you briefly alluded to it in your response, but could you elaborate 
a little bit more about the relationship that uh, the economy and foreign labor have in Qatar? Sure. Well, only about 10% of the people who live in Qatar are actually national Qatari citizens. And so the other 90% are people who come from other countries of the world. And and literally, Qatar has to import every single nail that it uses when it wants to build something. So it's, you know, almost everything has to be imported from somewhere else. Um, if it wants to achieve its its economic goals, its cultural goals, its social goals, it requires a massive influx of labor, and and that's blue collar labor, it's white collar labor, and um, you know the country at the same time is resistant to make those those laborers citizens, and so there's a continual churn or turnover in labor under this contract system that they have. And that's as true, you know, in some ways for the white collar professionals as it is for the, you know, blue collar construction workers. Um, Everyone there is basically a foreign worker um, who's there on a short-term contract and who can be kicked out of the country at any time. Um, So it requires a constant uh, turnover of labor and just a massive infrastructure to deal with all of the, the people who are coming in and out of the country constantly. Um, Because the country is reliant upon uh, all of this labor, it can create some sort of cultural problems at the ground. You know, there there can be some tensions where, you know, when 90% of the people who are in your country um, are not from your country and, um, you know, people feeling um, like they're being overrun, like, you know, their culture is being taken from them. Yet at the same time, the only way to move the country forward is to have that process sort of occur. And so you see, um, you know, cutteries, for example, will will do a lot of work around distinguishing themselves as cuttery citizens, showing to others, you know, who they are through their cultural practices, through the way that they dress, um, to distinguish themselves from from all of the workers coming in. So it's uh, it, it certainly creates a, an interesting uh, dynamic, and and the fact that you have so few citizens relative to the population uh, makes it unlike uh, uh, many other parts of the world. Right. Last question, Jeff. Uh, yes. What do you think would be the future scope of research in this area? Well, what I would hope to see are more smaller studies, more cultural studies, more of the studies that you know give you that that right on the ground perspective uh, that that I think sociologists bring. Uh, I like I personally love to see those, and it's always uh, welcome when I see them. Uh, I would like to see more studies of men also. Men, particularly in the Arab region, are often either you know demonized as these sort of oppressive heads of households and and things like that, or they're these marginalized workers, um, you know, construction laborers and things like that. And so I would love to hear just more from men. I, I did a lot of work in in the Changing Cutter book to make sure that male voices were uh, part of the story as, as much as possible. Even when talking about female sports, let's hear from some men. What do they think about this? Because often those voices are, are you know, the, the, again, these voices of oppression. So I'm always interested to see more uh, studies of men that present them in lights other than than the two ways that they're they're often portrayed in the literature. And then also, I think the thing that everyone asks to see is more studies from within. So these outsider perspectives like mine are, are important. Uh, and certainly as an outsider, you notice things that you wouldn't when you're an insider. But we'd all love to hear more from the inside the, the cuttery culture, you know, what sort of goes on behind the scenes 
um, when you have those perspectives, you, you're often getting something that that's missing in in books like mine, and and so welcome and, and interesting to hear. So, I would hope to see more studies coming from within as well. Well, that's a very interesting way to end the conversation. Thank you so much. It was lovely hearing to uh, listening to you talk about your book, and I hope that our listeners also pick up a copy and read the book. So, thank you once again <laughs> for doing this. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, these were great questions, and I, I really appreciate the, the thoughtful questions and conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you so much.